Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the, of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tables, and the tables tablets of covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect, perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serving the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenants that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins." Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be pured, purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, 
will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Margaret. Let me uh, pray, ask God's help as we uh, think about this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we worship a speaking God, a God who delights to be known and has made uh, all the necessary uh, steps in order that we might know you, that we might understand who you are, that we might relate to you, and we might respond to your love with our love. We thank you for how you've spoken to us through the scriptures, and for today we pray that as we look at this particular chapter, that it might indeed strengthen us, encourage us, correct us, that we would uh, leave this place or this time knowing that we have encountered the living God through his word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the far siren begins. Um, let me uh, read to you the first verse of uh, a hymn that uh, I don't know that we've uh, sung it in my time here at PCKS, but we're going to be singing it today at the end of our service. It's, uh, I think, one of the hymn writer William Cowper's finest hymns. The first verse goes like this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, and sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. So I hope we're going to see uh, Cowper's words get to the very heart of human need and also God's unbelievably generous and gracious provisions. But I probably also don't need to tell you that for many people, the, the kind of language we have here in this hymn isn't seen as good news, but is actually perceived somewhat as grotesque and primitive and offensive. Sinners plunged beneath a flood of blood? I mean, really? Christianity has been accused of being a religion of the slaughterhouse because of its emphasis on blood and the need for blood. And you can perhaps understand such an accusation when you think about how the Old Testament sacrificial system which prefigured Jesus' sacrifice, was indeed a very gory affair. During the thousand years plus of uh, the Old Covenant, there would have been more than a million animal sacrifices. And considering that each bull's sacrifice spilled a gallon or two of blood and each goat a quart, the Old Covenant truly did rest on a sea of blood. Modern people hear that and they say, you know, in our present world of blood and violence, the last thing we need is a fascination or an obsession or a glorification of blood. What we need today is moral uplift, is, is love. And it's not just modern secular people who struggle with the Bible's focus on blood. Just this week, one of our church members emailed me with this question said, why, why did Jesus have to go through such a gruesome death? Death is death. Why couldn't he have passed in a more dignified way? Which is perhaps another way of asking, why so much blood? 
Well, Hebrews 9, I think, is going to help us address both the sensibilities of modern people and the very valid questions of sincere Christians in this regard. And it's going to do so by, I hope, showing us that the remedy to our guilt and shame, the only remedy, is Christ's offering of his blood. We're going to think about this uh, through three large themes today. First of all, the problem raised. Secondly, the inadequate arrangement. And thirdly, the glorious solution. The only remedy to our guilt and shame is Christ's offering of his blood. So first, the problem raised. In the opening five verses of this chapter that Margaret read for us, the, the preacher takes the congregation on something of a guided tour of the old wilderness tabernacle, the first sanctuary of Israel under the old covenant. And he's following here the description of the design and furnishings of the temple by and large as laid out in the Old Testament book of Exodus chapters 25 to 40. The old sanctuary was a tent divided by curtains into two chambers and the, and the preacher begins the tour by, by pulling back the flap and inviting the congregation in for a peek at the first chamber. So he points them, first of all, to the, the lampstand and the table with the bread of the presence. He explains to them at this point they're in what's called the holy place. But then perhaps to the utter amazement of the congregation, the preacher takes them where they would never have been allowed to go. He takes them behind a second curtain to an even holier place, the holy of holies. This was the dwelling place of God, the throne room, and the part of the tabernacle that only the high priest could enter once a year on the Day of Atonement. More on that in a moment. But you can imagine this, this collective gasp by the congregation as the preacher pulls back this central curtain and invites them to look inside. Because right away their eyes would have been dazzled by gold, the golden incense altar, the Ark of the Covenant covered with gold. In the ark where the golden, was the golden jar of manna, there was Aaron's rod, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. On top of the ark was the golden mercy seat with its two gold cherubim hovering above. In other words, there's gold everywhere, together with the staggering monuments of the covenant. And then, just like that, the preacher drops the curtain and announces the tour is over with the words in verse 5 of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now that seems like somewhat of an abrupt conclusion to the tour, but it's enough for us to get started on our first point of a problem raised. You know, it's easy to get dazzled by all these golden wonders and miss that, that which didn't dazzle in the tent, but which was definitely daunting. And that is these curtains, and particularly what the preacher calls in verse 3, the second curtain around the Holy of Holies. That curtain was the ultimate warning barrier that communicated that God was home, but he doesn't take casual callers. He's holy, and we're not. And if this curtain concept feels somewhat foreign to you, and perhaps it does, you, you get a, a tiny, tiny glimpse of what's going on here when you think about that curtain that sometimes separates first class and coach on an airplane. Now, some of you may be asking on this anniversary week of the COVID shutdown, what's an airplane? That's a whole other question. But if you can remember back to those things, uh, you may recall there was this curtain. And once the flight was underway, you'd, it, it gets drawn between the two compartments. It's a barrier 
between those being served gourmet food on china and crystal by their own flight attendants and the rest of us who get snacks in plastics wrappers between those who get moist wipes for comfort and personal hygiene and the rest of us who stew in our facial sweat. And that curtain was not to be violated. You're not even permitted to see what's on the other side of that curtain. It's a barrier. Well, here to an even much, 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 much greater extent, here in the tabernacle, this curtain, which was the, the, the thickness of a man's hand, the span of a man's hand, here was the ultimate barrier between God and his people, which essentially said, no entry. It's indeed a problem raised. Well, that no entry message applied every single day, except one special day a year, and that's where the preacher goes next in verses 6 to 10, as he points us secondly to the the inadequate arrangement. Having given the congregation a brief tour of the tabernacle, the preacher now provides an, an action shot of the old double-chambered sanctuary at work. So first in verse 6, he brings us to the tabernacle on a routine day. We see typical everyday activity, a stream of busy, brizzy priests going into the first chamber, the outer tent, to conduct the customary rituals of worship, filling the lamps with oil, freshening the bread of of the presence, performing the daily sacrifices. But then we see the tabernacle not on an ordinary day, But on this very special day, the annual Day of Atonement, on this one day during the year, the high priest alone would go beyond the outer tent into the second and inner tent, the Holy of Holies. Verse 7 tells us the high priest would always take with him a blood sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, as an offering for his own sins and for the sins of the people. So on routine days, this tabernacle was a beehive of religious ritual and activity. But on this one extraordinary atonement day, one solitary figure would enter the innermost holy place all alone. Why is the preacher bringing that up at this point? It's to point out the absolute inadequacy of this old system to deal with the problem raised. Look at verses 8 to 10. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. He's talking there about the age of the Old Covenant. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. There were two main inadequacies of this Old Covenant arrangement, and the first was limited access. I mean, phrase after phrase in this chapter and in this whole middle section in Hebrews underscores the limited access to God under the old Levitical uh, priest arrangement. Only the high priest, only once a year, never without blood. Whether people today acknowledge it or not, we, we hunger for transcendence. We were made for an encounter with the living God. But the old covenant for the vast majority of people involved a religion that bustled with activity but lacked a true holy encounter. Everybody hungers for access to the holy, but under the old regime, only the high priest could go in. Everybody longs for God's mercy and help every day, but only the high priest could approach the holy, and only 
one day a year. So the first inadequacy was this limited access. But the second was limited efficacy. Verse 13, the preacher mentions what the blood of animals could do. He says, the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. As the, old, the old priest sacrificed animals, and the preacher acknowledges that these old sacrifices, as well as the purification rites that accompanied them, were to a certain extent effective. That is, they at least gave people the kind of external purity that allowed them to function in the community and to participate in worship. They provided a, a provisional release from ritual impurity. But that was pretty much it. It was all externals. They, they couldn't deal with the internal. More specifically, they couldn't deal with our guilt. The words of the preacher, verse 9, the old covenant sacrifices could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Now, this is where Hebrews 9 gets into an issue that is both ancient and indeed very modern. This was not just a live issue for this original congregation. This gets at the very modern problem of a troubled conscience. Term conscience really here refers to your, your own self-evaluation of how fit you are for the presence of another. So a bad conscience is this profound self-consciousness that you, you could not survive close examination, that if others really knew who you were, what you're like, what you've done, you'd be rejected. And here in Hebrews, in the context, uh, the conscience, in a, in a sense, is used with a, an additional sense of that in the context of the other being God, in the context of the worship of God, this, this, it's this smiting self-evaluation that what defiles us is not just external, but internal. And it's that that cuts us off from the living God. And here was the heart of the problem. The religious observances and moral efforts, no matter how much or how many, can never get rid of this internal, internal problem of a conscience that knows that we're not fit for examination and we need to hide. Those things cannot deal with our guilt and our shame. And so in that sense, Hebrews 9 is not just a critique of animal sacrifices. It's saying that in, in some sense, we're all in the tent we're all trying to do what we can to, to cover up a sense that we're not what we ought to be, that our consciences are not at rest. And that's true both of religious people and irreligious people. 19th, 20th century novelist Franz Kafka wrote in one of his diaries these words. He said, the state in which we find ourselves today is sinful, quite independent of guilt. He said, and remember he wrote these words over a century ago, he said, we live in a world today where, where we don't believe in judgment, where we don't believe in objective sin, where we don't believe in guilt. We don't have those categories anymore, and yet we still feel like there's something fundamentally wrong with us. Even though we don't have the old categories, we have this deep sense that if we were examined, we wouldn't pass. If we were inspected, we would be rejected. We have this deep sense that even though we don't have the old categories, there's something still fundamentally wrong with us. Let me give you two examples of this 
troubled conscience and our inability to fix it. Perhaps one of the best known examples is Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth, that after the murder of King Duncan, she sleepwalks through the castle, hallucinating and rubbing her hands together as she's trying to wash them clean of the, the blood in her hands, crying out, out, damned spot, out, I say. Later, her husband asks the doctor, Canst thou not with some sweet, oblivious antidote cleanse the bosom of that perilous stuff that weighs upon the heart? And the answer, of course, is no. There is no sweet, oblivious antidote to such a troubled conscience. Here's a more contemporary example. In the 1991 film, The Fisher King, which 30 years ago, I can't believe it's that old, but if you, if you remember that film, Jeff Bridges plays this New York City trash-talking radio host called Jack Lucas. And one night he makes this con contemptuous, sarcastic remark to a poor troubled listener, challenging to him to do something which just sets the listener off. This listener goes into a restaurant, he starts shooting and killing people as well as killing himself. And the whole incident destroys Jack's life. It, it breaks him. He hits rock bottom. He's, he's drinking heavily. And then he finds Perry, played by Robin Williams, a homeless ma man whose mind had gone after his wife had been killed in that restaurant. Jack does everything he can with Perry in order to try to atone for his sense of his own sins. He, he's in the tent there as he's trying to get Perry off the street, trying to help this homeless man get on his feet again and get straight, doing everything he can to try to heal his own troubled conscience, but he can't. And so at one point he says, why can't I just pay the price and go home? But he can't, because none of us can. And some of us think that if we just wait long enough, then the conscience kind of will self-clean itself. So in his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis wrote, we have a strange illusion that mere time cancels sin. We recount past sins of our youth with laughter as if the sins themselves make us more interesting people, but mere time does nothing either to the fact or to the guilt of a sin. Religious observances... And moral efforts are inadequate to get rid of the internal problem of a troubled conscience. It's all an inadequate arrangement. But praise God that Hebrews 9 is ultimately pointing us to the fact that there is this glorious solution. Listen to how Lewis finishes that quote that I just read a second ago. He says, Mere time does nothing either to the fact or to the guilt of a sin, the guilt is washed out not by time, but by repentance and the blood of Christ. So look with me at verses 11 to 15 in our chapter. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. But if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. This glorious solution to our problem involves Christ fulfilling, as it were, if you will, a a heavenly liturgy made up of three movements, namely his death, his ascension, and then his appearance in the presence of God, which is all kind of viewed here by the preacher as a unified whole. And notice there, there is some continuity here between what the old Levitical priest did and what Jesus does. So for Jesus, the sacrifice also takes place outside the Holy of Holies. For Jesus, his sacrifice, where he sheds his blood, is on the cross. But then, like the Old Testament high priest, he brings the offering of his blood through the curtain into the Holy of Holies. So that, strictly speaking, off- Jesus' offering takes place not on the cross, but actually in the Holy of Holies. Only this is the true Holy of Holies. This is the heavenly tabernacle. But while there's a little bit of continuity, here are the three reasons why Jesus' offering is vastly superior to that priestly offering. Number one, the place of the offering of blood was in heaven rather than in the earthly tabernacle, as we just said. Secondly, the offering was eternal once and for all. As the preacher mentions at the end of this chapter, we'll think more about that next week. And then third, and here's where we need to hit the pause button for a moment, the blood of the offering was Christ's own blood. That brings us really back to our earlier question. Why, Why the blood? Look with me at verse 22. The preacher says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There are at least three reasons why blood is so prominent in the Bible and why there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And the first is that at a fundamental level, life is in the blood. Preacher in verse 22 here is really drawing off Leviticus 17 verse 11, which says this, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. The book of Leviticus taught that the the blood is the seat of life. And when blood was shed, it was a life-for-life exchange as an atonement, as a a payment for sin. Secondly, therefore, the, the shedding of blood emphasized the seriousness of sin. Our culture, as Franz Kafka highlighted, has very little place for the category of sin beyond perhaps thinking that having that extra slice of chocolate cake would be, quote, sinful or the like. But the Bible takes sin very, very seriously, more than any other religious writings, because as a result of the fall, sin is rooted in the hearts of men and women, and it alienates us from the God who created us, and it leads to death. And you can bet that with every blood sacrifice, the Old Testament uh, people observed or participated in, the message was loud and clear and and understood that I am a sinner, God is holy, and I deserve to die. The shedding of blood emphasized the seriousness of sin. But then thirdly, we see that because sin is so serious, the forgiveness of sin is therefore costly. 20th century pastor theologian, German pastor theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer Put it this way, he said, if you've really, really forgiven something, 
something hard, you understand that all forgiveness involves suffering. That is, if someone has truly wronged you deeply, there is this indelible sense of debt, this injustice that you can't just shrug off. If you can shrug it off, it's not really that deep a wound, a debt. But when it is serious, there are two things you can do. Number one, you can either make the perpetrator suffer and pay down the debt himself or herself, or number two, you can forgive them. You take the first option that the evil that was done to you will pass into you and you'll become as cruel and hard as the perpetrator. The only alternative to that is to actually forgive. And that means not only not making the perpetrator suffer, but also not tearing up the perpetrator's reputation to other people, not despising them, not hating them, that if you forgive, you agree to pay down the debt yourself internally. And that paying down, you and I know, is agony because it's costly. And so it was for God. When God sees our sin, there are only two things that can happen. He can judge it, and we suffer, or he can forgive it, and he suffers. He pays the debt. And for those who have put their trust in Jesus, that's exactly what he's done. He paid the debt for our sin in full, in blood, in his son Jesus' blood. As Jesus gave his life for yours by dying in your place. So that now, as the Apostle Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now there's no guilt. It's been dealt with. There is no shame. It's been dealt with. That Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. The only remedy to our guilt and shame is Christ's offering of his blood. I've quoted, from, quoted Dick Lucas various times over the years. Lucas was the minister of St. Helens Bishopsgate Church in the financial, a heart of the financial district in London for many years. He's one of the people who's been most formative for me in my ministry and my preaching. He's still alive at the age of 95. Lucas tells the story that in 1955, Billy Graham was invited to speak at Cambridge University in England by a small group of Christian students there. And almost immediately, letters uh, to the editor of the London Times began pouring in, essentially saying, you know, I'm, I'm sure that Mr. Graham is a very nice man, but he's a fundamentalist Christian. He's the sort that believes that the blood of Jesus is required for salvation. And we all know that sort of thing just doesn't go over here. Further, I can't imagine what the fine young men and women from Cambridge University can learn from a man like this. Well, Graham saw these letters and it worried him, so he set about creating eight erudite, high-minded, scholarly addresses. They were totally different from what he would normally preach. He had one lesson planned out for each night that he was to preach at Great St. Mary Church in Cambridge, that time, there were about 8,000 students at the university. Each night, Graham packed the church with about 2,000 students and faculty. And on the first Monday and Tuesday night, Graham delivered his prepared remarks. 
And something incredible happened. Namely, nothing. For Graham, even a young Graham, nothing was a most unusual occurrence when he preached. So on the Wednesday night, he set aside his prepared remarks and said to his congregation, let me tell you what I know about the cross of Jesus Christ. And here's how Dick Lucas recalls that evening. He said, I'll never forget that night. I was in the totally packed chancel, sitting on the floor with the Regis Professor of Divinity on one side and one of the college chaplains who was a future bishop on the other. Both of these were very good men, but completely against the idea that you needed salvation from sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. So dear Billy got up that night and he began in Genesis and he went right through the whole Bible and he talked about every single sacrifice you can imagine. The blood was just flowing all over the place, everywhere, for three quarters of an hour. Both my neighbors were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they disliked and everything they dreaded. But at the end of the sermon, Billy Graham dismissed the audience and invited anyone who wanted to stay behind and make a commitment to Christ. And that night, to everyone's shock, 400 young men and women stayed. Dick Lucas mentioned meeting a brilliant young Cambridge graduate several years later who had gone into the ministry and asking him, where, where, where did Christian things begin for you? The man said, Cambridge, 1955. He said, when? Wednesday night of the Billy Graham crusade. How did it happen? He said, I don't know. All I know is that when I walked out of there that night, finally, I realized that Jesus had died for me. A minister had been a moral person, but that night the blood of Jesus changed everything. He had known Jesus as an example, but never as his savior. But that night his life was transformed. Maybe today for some of us here or some of us watching will be the day that your life is transformed because of a realization of something that you never really appreciated before, that the only remedy to your guilt and your shame is Christ's offering of his blood. That there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a Savior you are. Heavenly Father, what a loving Heavenly Father you are, that you would do everything necessary for our forgiveness, for our salvation, for the purifying and cleansing of our conscience, dealing with our guilt and our shame in the only way that they could be dealt with, by the precious blood of Jesus. Lord, we pray that for anyone who is here in the sanctuary or anyone watching this service, racked by guilt, racked by shame, that they would hear this as the incredibly good news, that Jesus has paid it all. That while sin had left that 
crimson stain. He's washed it white as snow. And that for those of us who know that good news already, that, that somehow would release us into a new freedom, a new joy, a new hope, a new perseverance in our life, because we know and appreciate and love you, Jesus, for all that you've done for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.